This podcast is brought to you by A Copy Match. A Copy Match is a boutique matchmaking service that helps exceptional singles find meaningful connections and relationships. To learn more about our matchmaking services, online dating makeovers and takeovers, or to enroll in an upcoming group coaching intensive, go to agapimatch.com. Welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. For over a decade, I have combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, I answer dating and relationship questions on the podcast and online. If you're not already following me, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Matchmaker Maria. And while you're at it, follow this podcast, Ask a Matchmaker. Subscribe to it on the podcast app that you're listening to. This way you are notified every week when a new episode drops. This week's guest is Dr. Terry Orbach. Dr. Terry Orbach is a distinguished professor at Oakland University, a research scientist at University of Michigan's Institute for Social Research, an author, a speaker, a therapist, a relationship and date coach, and the love doctor, registered trademark, in the media. Her practical science-based advice has helped thousands of people find and create the loving relationships they deserve. She's the director of a landmark study funded by the NIH, the National Institute of Health, where she has been following the same couples for over three decades. You can read all her books, Five Simple Steps to Take Your Marriage from Good to Great. That's one of my favorites. Finding Love Again, Six Simple Steps to a New and Happy Relationships. And her latest book, Secrets to Surviving Your Children's Love and Relationships, is will be published or is published this month, March 2022. All right, that was a really big intro. Dr. Terry Orbach, welcome to the Ask a Matchmaker podcast. Mm, thank you, Maria. And thanks for that wonderful, nice introduction as well. You're welcome. Now we know each other personally. So what do mm -hmm. I call you on this podcast? Oh, Terry. Okay. Absolutely, Terry. <laughs> you know, in our office, we call you Dr. T or Dr. Terry. Uh, like that, Before I started recording, I was like, how do I say your last name? I've never, I don't ever call you by your last name. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to have you here, mainly because I feel like I'm constantly talking about you. But I don't remember, I, I have had to have said it on the podcast a few times. So now I'm like, I'm so happy that it's like, oh yeah, here's the source of where I'm getting some of this information from. And it was only in preparation of this meeting where I realized like, oh my God, I've been lying about something. So one of the things that I go, like mm -hmm. I absolutely love is your 10 minute rule, which we'll mm, talk about yes. today. Good. But I have been telling people for like six years, it's the 15 minute rule. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and my husband calls it the 15 minute rule too, because we do it. We actively do. I feel like this is the secret to a great marriage and we'll talk about it, but, um, we've been calling the 15 minute rule and then it's like, I'm preparing for this and I was like, wait, what? It's the 10 minute rule. Oh my God. Like, what are we doing with 15? We'll keep it 15. But, uh, I thought that was really great. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um, you know, I want to learn about your study at the NIH and what you learned from your research about maintaining happy and healthy relationships. 
Oh, thank you, Maria. Yes. Well, I'm all about relationships, happy, healthy relationships, and how to either find them or maintain them. And my study is a wonderful study, Maria, because I've been following these 373 couples now for over 30 years. And so I've been interested in what keeps couples together, what breaks couples apart, and when couples get divorced or someone loses a spouse due to death, how do people, why do people, and what are the factors that predict repartnering? So I should go, mm -hmm. to go back to this now, like how did this, you said how many couples? 373. Did it start off as 373 yes, couples? Yes, it started off as 373 couples. All of the couples got married in 1986. And what we did was we went to marriage licenses in a county in Michigan and asked everyone who applied for a marriage during those three months to be a part of the study. And what is the, first of all, where did you get the idea to do such a study? Mm, well, I have to give credit to my colleague, Joe Viroff. Um, he was the one that had the inspiration and the idea. There was so little research out there on couples over time, especially when you start with those who get married People had studied marriage, people had studied relationships, but never starting with the marriage itself when they get married and then following them over time. And it's funded, as you said, by the National Institutes of Health, and they've continued to fund the study, which is wonderful. It's a large project. I am not, I'm the director, but I am so not the only person on the project. So you start off with these couples. What is the... Uh the demographic breakdown of this, like, mm -hmm. you know, obviously it's people who chose to be in the study, but yes. demographically, how, what's the breakdown here? Well, first, as you said, Maria, it's people who chose to be in the study and also both partners had to agree to be in the study. So those are two biases or things we have to remember that people wanted to be part of the study and then also that both members of the couple wanted to be part of the study. When I look at, the, I call my couples, I'll say my couples, sure. um, when my, when I look at my couples and the demographics of my couples, it turns out that there are no differences nationally between my couples and couples getting married in about in 96 to 1990 and so they have similar demographics in terms of income education about a half of them actually lived together before getting married and about a third had children or were pregnant before they got married so it's yes exactly Is everyone here in this breakdown, of three, you said 374? Mm -hmm. 373, but so close. <laughs> Are these couples, is this their first marriage? And this is all first married couples. Excellent question. Okay. And so we wanted to make sure that was there, as well as the wife had to be 35 years old or younger. At that time, that was the medical year where you weren't put at risk. And we wanted to allow for voluntary parenthood if that was something that couples wanted to do. How many couples also, um, chose mm -hmm. to have children? Mm, or were able to have children? I hate to say 96% of the couples. 96%, okay. Mm -hmm. And um, so you've got your couples. I'm assuming it's more couples now with, you know, people get divorced and remarried. Do you add those couples in as well? 
No, we do not. So I follow all of the individuals over time now, Maria. So now I like to say that I've been following 746 individuals, about a half of whom are still married to the same person that they got married in 1986, and about a half of whom are no longer married. But I continue to follow the individuals. I just don't add the new spouses or the new partners. But another great statistic that I have to mention that's really hopeful is that of those couples who got divorced, 71% repartnered, found love again. Okay. So when I think about this study, you know, obviously I have a relationship with you and we've had these questions, we've had a mm -hmm. conversation about this uh, several times together. Um, but um, I think one thing that sticks out to me is this percentage of like, well, half of the couples you know, didn't work out. And I know that there's a different breakdown if we start looking now at other factors and which of those people divorce. So like when you look at your couples, mm -hmm. what are demographically now, not so from a quantitative perspective, not necessarily a qualitative perspective, are, is there, do you find data? Like for instance, I've heard that if you are college educated, or if you are over the age of 27 when getting married, the rate of divorce is lower. So, you know, mm -hmm. overall that 373, 50% is divorced, but then what is the breakdown from a quantitative perspective uh, when you look at your data? Mm -hmm. And that's a really good question. And there are so many ways that we could slice the pie, so to speak, Maria. Mm -hmm. um, first, cohabitation did not predict who got divorced or not. Income, okay. household income, did not predict who got divorced and who did not. However, financial strain did predict who got divorced. So if people felt that they were strained economically, stressed economically, regardless of their income, they were more likely to get divorced. Age of marriage also predicted who got divorced and who did not. The younger, under 25 versus okay. over 25. So younger were more likely to get divorced over time. Is it both Ed both set, both sides of the couple uh, have to be under 25? Or was there, did you see yes. a difference between if someone, one person was 25 and one person was 35? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. Um, in this study, it was both members of the couple were under 25. Why and do I you should think say, that is? Mm -hmm. I think um, that when you're older, you have a greater sense of self. You know yourself better. You know your key life values better, what's important to you in your life. And you're more likely to pick someone who meets those key life values, who is similar to you in those key life values. And I think once we're much more confident with ourself and who we are, we pick partners differently. We pick better partners. Sure. Sure. And so- Well, how about that would... um, when you look at your data too, I'm wondering like, okay, I get the under 25 thing. Um, how about how long did you calculate like how long someone dated before they got married you know like sometimes people they might get married because uh you know i mean people get married early for a variety of reasons mm -hmm. let's say before the one year mark 
So let's say mm-hmm. I met someone in January. Let's say in the hypothetical situation, you got pregnant in, in May and we decided mm-hmm. to get married in July. You know, does your data show that if you dated less than a certain period that there was, again, um, a probability for, let's call it misalignment of a healthy relationship? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Again, we cannot decipher that. I mean, it's a okay. great question. And I know other people are studying how long people knew one another. We did measure how long people lived together, but we didn't measure how long people were dating. In our study, interestingly enough, there were many couples who dated and didn't date and dated and didn't date or didn't call themselves a couple. And uh, yes, which is fine. You know, there were four couples. I mean, there were four, yes, four couples who got divorced and remarried as well. Oh, together. Together, yes. That's really interesting. Okay. There are, you know, after, and they're still married, yes. Okay. But there are so many variations. I mean, you know, several individuals ended up in jail. Um, Several individuals have illnesses that prevent them from being fully cognitively present. So there are a lot of different individual factors, especially, I mean, we're in year 34 of these couples' marriages or these individuals' lives. And so there are a lot of factors that predict happiness for couples who stay together. Uh, uh, the, you know, it not all couples are happy staying together. I have one more quantitative mm-hmm. question before we talk mm-hmm. about the qualitative, sure. because I definitely want to hear what makes these relationships work. But I've noticed that, you know, I could see it with my parents, like there's different stages to a relationship. And so you started... Mm-hmm. You know, you were following these couples where the women were under 35, you know, these 373 mm-hmm. couples. And so let's say at that first stage, let's call, it, let's call it three stages, right? So that first mm-hmm. stage is newlyweds, possibly going to have children. And you said, what, 96% right. had kids. Yes. That second stage is raising those kids. Mm-hmm. And then that third mm-hmm. stage is those kids, well, not raising those kids. And actually, we're talking about four stages. So that third stage is those kids go to college and are empty nesters. And now if you're talking about... 36 years later, those people might be becoming into their fourth stage, which is grandparents. Cause you know, and I see mm-hmm. this from my perspective, I was born in 84. Mm-hmm. Um, so my parents are now grandparents. This is their fourth stage of their relationship where they now know each other as grandparents. Right. So do you see in these stages, and I don't know if that's the right word, you probably have a different way of dividing people. It's probably way smarter and better than mine. Most definitely not probably. But do you see that like, okay, if people don't divorce by this stage, then they're going to possibly divorce at this stage. Like, you know, some people say, oh, we stayed married until our kids went to college. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, do you absolutely. see that in your data? Like, that yes, absolutely. There, mm-hmm, there are different period. stages, at, first of all. And the factors that what I call predict happiness in early marriage are different than middle marriage and later marriage. For example, health becomes a factor in middle marriage, so to speak, as well as um, there are two big peaks or common time periods when people get divorced. In my study at about year seven was a common time period where couples got divorced. In fact, it was the most common time period so far when couples get divorced. When? Um, year seven. Year seven. 
Yes. And that's because, again, couples have had one child or two kids, um, and kids are a stressor to marriages, especially the happiness in a marriage. And both partners don't feel like they're being seen or noticed. They're being taken for granted. Couples get into what we call a relationship rut. So that's a very common period. And then between about 25 and 27 years again, yes, which is the launching period for children. So many children leave the home. They might leave for a job. They might leave for college. They might leave for another partner or a partner. Um, and so couples now look at each other and say, who are you? Do I still care about you? Do I still like you? Do I want to spend time with you? And one of the things we found, Maria, is that during those child rearing years, many couples put their relationship on the back burner. And they say to themselves, we'll get back to this. We'll get back to our relationship when there's time. And then when the kids leave and they come back to the relationship, it's decades later. And people change and people have resentment and people aren't happy. And so I really encourage couples to not put their relationship on the back burner and pay attention to the small things from zero all the way forward. One of the things that I love, and it's fact, I always have a copy of it behind me, but one of my girlfriends is borrowing it, borrowing it is your book, Five Simple Steps to Take Your Marriage from Good to Great. And, you know, so much of that book is filled with, you know, things that you've learned from a qualitative perspective on your couples. And I'd love to learn more about, like, what were your observations when you look at the couples that... I don't want to say made it because you just said that there are couples that put their relationship in the back burner for 25 years, which is insane to me. But what are the tools that some healthy and happy couples are using to maintain the longevity of their marriage and, you know, and let's say their emotional well-being? Mm -hmm. Well, first, that book, Five Simple Steps to Take Your Marriage from Good to Great, Maria, is all about the happy couples. It's all about what these couples did to take their relationship from okay, good, to really great. And it's partly qualitative information or data, what I observed, what they told us, but it's also quantitative research okay. and data. Because we actually asked these couples separately as individuals as well as a couple every single year of the study long hour and a half surveys and so we were able to quantitatively look at some of the factors that really predict how happy they were and whether or not they stayed together or not one of the things that i found you asked what i found is that Really happy couples pay attention to the small things. They actually sweat the small stuff. Mm -hmm. And I know for many people that's contrary to what they believe or what they've heard or what's been said in the media, but happy couples sweat the small stuff. What's and so those little, the small stuff is anything that you think is irritating or annoying, 
like the toilet seat, the toothpaste tube, how somebody empties or fills the dishwasher, or that they chew with their mouth open, or what they wear. So someone might, telling you about this? Mm-hmm. You, you might think it? these is are that, small things. Or no? I, I call it um, pet peeves. That's what I call them pet peeves and most people would say or some people would say you know pick your battles don't talk about those little things but what i found is that happy couples actually address those small things those pet peeves because what starts out small maria you know the toilet paper the toothpaste chewing oh, with yeah. your mouth open right it builds resentment and it's easy to unpack and address at the beginning and talk about it but what yeah. starts out small becomes you don't love me you're not listening to me i don't love you and then it becomes really hard to unpack so happy couples sweat the small stuff second affirmation is so important and regular affirmation and affirmation is the degree to which you feel special cared for valued and loved by your partner. And that can be through words or it can be through behaviors. Words like, I love you, you're great, you're wonderful, thank you for being in my life, or actions. I hug you, I kiss you, I have sex with you, I make uh, your favorite dessert, or I turn on the coffee pot in the morning because I know you need caffeine. Those things impact and was the number one predictor of happiness and divorce over time how and it was more important for men that? than like, women I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting you but how do you even calculate that terry like it's like when you would check so you checked in with all of these couples individually mm -hmm. every single individually year. not every single year but almost every single year yes and okay. we ask five questions Okay. Do you feel your partner notices you? Do you feel your partner cares about you and your daily experiences? Does your partner make you feel special and cared for? Does your partner make your, your life exciting and worthwhile? And we have that five item measure and it's very reliable, meaning that um, it predicts what it's supposed to really show, which is, do you feel noticed? Do you feel cared for? And we look to see in every year, as well as does it predict the next year? And the next year, uh, does that affirmation predict happiness? And does that scale predict whether or not people stay together? Or do people not. give like specific examples when they're filling this out? Like, you know, yeah, I do feel noticed because he does this, 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 this. So first we have just the scale. Okay. And then oh, it's scale. we, okay. oh, it's a scale. Yes. A okay. five item scale. Mm -hmm. Then we have open-ended questions. How do you feel noticed? How does your partner or spouse make you feel special and excited and noticed and cared for and valued? As well as when the couple gets together, we have them tell the story of their relationship from when they first met and became a couple and onward. And so we videotape it and we audiotape it. 
where they're talking to one another as well. And in that story, which lasts between 20 minutes and two hours, they talk to one another and they share the things that are important. So we have many different ways to measure affirmation, validation, and how important it is to happiness and how important it is to predicting who stays together and who doesn't. And by the way, I should say that when men, husbands, say that they do not feel affirmed from their wife often, that couple was almost two times more likely to divorce over time. And that was not true for the women. Why do you think that is? Mm, Because I think after we did some focus groups as well, and I think as women, we're really fortunate, Maria, we get affirmation from all kinds of people in our lives, our sisters, our best friends, our neighbors, our moms, our kids, even the stranger when we walk into a coffee shop or a restaurant, notices a new haircut, a new outfit. But men don't give each other that same validation and that same specialness. In fact, I remember really clearly when I was analyzing these data in the study, And my son, who was 18 at the time, just had gotten this really cool haircut. He had long hair and it was a buzz cut. And he went to high school. And when he came home, I said, did anyone notice your haircut? And he said, mom, we don't talk like that, my friends and I. Guys don't look at other guys and say, I like your haircut. Where did you get your haircut? I have a theory about this. Okay, yes. (laughs) We went from hunter-gatherer society Mm-hmm. Right? We're like, let's say, let's pretend for a second, the men are the hunters and the women are the gatherers, right? And somehow in modern society, it's become women are the information gatherers and men mm-hmm. are just like, well, we're not hunting, but let's just all walk in the same direction or let's just do this activity together, like golfing or fishing. Right. And you're right, because of that, you know, when another woman meets another woman uh, on the street, like let's say you and I, which has happened, right? You and I will see each other right. at a conference. We immediately start talking. You might mm-hmm. say, oh my God, Maria, I love the dress that you have. And I'll be like, oh my God, you got new frames. You're so cute. Like we are exchanging information and acknowledging each other while speaking. How many women have seen someone on a, on a Metro and said, oh my God, I love your bag. Where did you get it? Exactly. This is an information gatherer exchange. And then you see like a man and you've never seen a man turn to another man and say like, oh my God, you have to tell me where you got your pants. Like that's not a conversation I've ever seen two, at least two straight men have. Um, and I, and I like to, I, I love observing my husband, uh, when the way he talks to his friends and it's mm-hmm. very different from the way like me and my girlfriends communicate. And, uh, I, I really, I, I, I don't know. I feel like and you're, and you're right. I think it is also socialized in us to kind of communicate that way too. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wonder, so lately I've been really getting into the theories of enmeshment to understand like narcissism and avoidance behavior. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. could be a different topic for a different day between you and I. Right. Um, and, <laughs> and what I'm learning is also like the relationship that some sons have with their mothers and mm-hmm. how maybe the mother is acknowledging the son in that emotional perspective. He's not learning how to do this with other people. And then finally, when he meets another woman, even if she's validating, acknowledging him because someone else has been doing it his whole life, he can't even see past. This is again, these are just my own little 
theories of understanding. You're just nodding away. Oh, I love your theories of understanding. I love the theories. And, and I agree with them all. I think, you know, our history and our evolution has to do with whether or not men information gather or not, as well as our socialization and what we're taught by our mother and our father. Um, I think when fathers are affectionate, that changes the son um, completely. And when the father and the mother are affirming and ask for emotional expression. And in fact, studies show that that changes what sons do, not only for themselves, but in their own relationships as well. I went to India for a, a dating industry conference a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. pre-pandemic, and I got to visit matrimony.com's uh, matchmaking offices. They're the biggest matchmaker in India, citing over 1 million marriages. <laughs> Wow. Can you believe that? That's anyway, great. this was the motto that was in the office. Like when you enter, it said, the future of a country depends on its citizens. Good citizens emerge from good parenting. Good parenting happens in a happy marriage. And we are the gateway to happy marriages. And I, mm. I remember just like kind of staring at that for a really long time. Cause, and it's, you know, it's really affected the way I parent as mm -hmm. well. Like how affectionate I am with my husband in front of my mm -hmm. kids, how we communicate openly, even when we, I get, I you called it pet peeves. So sometimes we'll nit, not nitpick because I don't want to say that, but like, you know, we'll have our disagreements. I don't say we're going to wait until the kids go to sleep. I do it in front of our kids. Like, let me show you cool. how a constructive conversation goes. So you know that there's an I love end it. to this. That's so important, by the way, so important to show healthy conflict resolution in front of your kids. Otherwise, kids grow up and they think that good relationships don't have disagreements. And I didn't grow up like that. So like, not, look, my parents are great parents. I'm not taking away their success as parents, but mm -hmm. my parents, and I'm sure many people of my generation and even your generation, Terry, you've grown mm -hmm. up with like your parents maybe fought and mm -hmm. then they never resolved it. Time passed in my, in my parents' case, one hour would pass. There would mm -hmm. be an offering of food, like someone would make a coffee or a tea or a dessert or whatever. And it's like, okay, this offering of food is our peace symbol. <laughs> it's Let's, the way they dealt with differences and disagreements. Right. right. And then once every 10 years, there'd be like a massive explosion of emotions. And, mm -hmm. you know, I remember getting into my earlier relationships and even in the beginning, like in, in the beginning of my marriage, where it was like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Like, you know, I don't want to, not necessarily, well, this, I feel like I kind of stopped this before I got married, but like, I had to actively learn. I got to say, I learned a lot from you. Mm -hmm. like, oh, thank you. have you. such an impact <laughs> on my marriage. And I tell that, that's why I was telling you before, like, I tell everyone about you. Um, and it was oh, because of that, that where it's like, you have to become aware of, you know, you have an audience when you have kids. And even if you don't mm -hmm. have kids, you might want to have kids one day and now you have an audience and they, you know, you as a parent, I would hope that most parents want the best for their kids one day. And what I hope is that my children find healthy relationships where the person opposite them, whoever they decide to marry, respects them and Absolutely. admires them. <laughs> That's what I want for my kids too, Maria. My kids are 27 and 24, so they're really in finding, oh, yeah. trying to find love relationships or partners. And by the way, this is my new book coming out this month. 
secrets to surviving your children's love relationships is all about as a parent, good relationships for your children start with you. And that just like you said, Maria, you have to model good, happy, healthy relationships, not only with your love partner, but all other people, because your kids are watching you like a hawk, like you they said, really they really and they are. take in and they model and they do what you do. And even more so than what you say. So we really need to be careful and attentive. I've learned even how, like, to, yeah, I've I'll learned let... conflict resolution with my husband. Like, you know, like, okay, when something happens, we have, if something gets a little bit too tense, we do have a safe mm -hmm. phrase, which mm -hmm. we got from a porno. It's just funny mm -hmm. shit that we do. Um, okay. It, we I like that one. We see this particular movie. We just saw the intro to it because it was on YouTube. It's like a funny right? one from Greece. Um, but we thought the sentence was so funny. That's like our safe, our safe phrase when like things right. are going down. So if someone right. says it, we have to depart the room. We have to give mm -hmm. ourselves 15 minutes and then we have to talk about it like adults. And so mm -hmm. my children have seen us. I mean, I don't know how cognitive my 21 month old is, but my four and a half year old definitely knows what's happening when we're fighting. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. he gets to see us work it out. So now when he gets into trouble, you know, we'll put him in his room for a couple of minutes. He cries. He wants the attention. He cries, cries, cries. Right. But then I come in and he knows what's about to happen. He knows we have to talk about it. He knows we have to resolve it. He knows that apologies might have to be said. Not always, but usually. So like there is this, like, I think it's a, about consistency here. And I think that's what you're also saying in the message of your studies, which is that, you know, in order for a relationship to be healthy and happy over time, there has to be a consistency in these behaviors. Right. So why do you see in some couples, like you mentioned that one of the biggest uh, reasons that someone might be separate is because of financial strain. And you also mentioned that it doesn't matter how much money they make, it's the financial strain. So can right. you tell me more about that? Mm -hmm. Is this a lifestyle well, misalignment or is this how you value money or time differentiation? Mm -hmm. oh, the, yeah, all, all good points. And I, I think it's a combination of all of what you said. But I think most importantly, money is the number one issue or topic of conflict and disagreement among couples. So 75% of the couples said that money presents or causes tension in their relationship. Why is that, they said? Because people only talk money when there's a problem, when there's credit mm. card debt, when taxes are due, when there's an issue in terms of a difference between saving and spending. And so I think we learn that money can't be talked about in a neutral way or in a positive way, as well as I don't think people know how to talk about money. No, they really because don't. Because we don't, really I don't. Learn. And I think, and people talk more about sex these days, I think, than they do about money. And we want to remember that that causes tension when you don't know how to talk about it. Also, I don't think it's about the actual money. It's about what money represents to you. And money represents different things to different people. For me, for example, it means stability. Mm. When I have money, I feel calm. I feel secure and stable. For my husband, it is a sign of how well he's doing. And so you really need to talk about your 
with your partner, what does money mean to you? Where did you learn about the meaning of money? Or, or not And learn. if there are different, or not learn, right? But again, I think when we observe our parents, we learn some meaning. We can accept that or not. I feel like, but we, yeah, it goes back to, you know, your parents, like, I don't, like, my parents didn't teach me and my sister shit about money. And as a result, mm -hmm. my sister and I made some really expensive mistakes as young adults. Mm-hmm. And, and, but maybe that's what they taught you, see, because they probably, didn't yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. talk about that's it. Exactly what that it was. was a meaning. And so you didn't know that you had to save or, you know, choose differently or make a different decision. Like I think about and now, so, like what does money mm -hmm. mean to me? And for me, it's a tool. Like for me, is money is a tool for me to do things that I want to do. I am mm -hmm. curious though, of the people that said that they were stressed out about money, do you ask who here has a mortgage versus who is renting? We ask all about that mortgage, renting. Um, we ask about whether or not you have a full-time salary, you're paid by the hour, whether or not it's a career or a job. We ask, um, it's called the income needs ratio, okay. which is how much income you make to how many needs you actually have. And so renting versus a mortgage Did is one need. you see a differentiation in like divorce between the renties no. versus the mortgage people? No. Okay. No. Everyone, she's, so you nothing. You can't see her, but ink. she's she's nodding no. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. I should say what I'm showing you, right? Exactly. No, because none of those things, household income, individual income, income needs ratio, looking at those more specific things about income, mm. even children and how much you spend on children mm. did not predict who got divorced and who didn't. It was financial strain or stress. So let me ask you a question. One of the, I love talking about the finance stuff. In fact, one of my most favorite episodes on the Ask a Matchmaker podcast is episode 37, where we have Dr. Shannon Curry, who talks about, she's a financial counselor. Like that's what she does. She talks about couples and financial mm -hmm. um, alignment. And you know, one of my, one of the questions that I get the most from my listeners and my followers is when can I start talking about money? When can I ask mm -hmm. about how much they make? Which again, I always tell people like, sometimes it doesn't matter how much they make it. What matters I think is <laughs> how they assess risk and, uh, mm -hmm. and like what they plan to do with that money because you might, you know, right. that person could be making billions. It doesn't matter if you don't get access to the same lifestyle that you want. Right. Um, right. of course you'll have to tell me, you'll have to validate or invalidate anything I'm saying. But uh, one of the com most common questions as I mentioned is like, when do I start talking about financial stuff and how do I know if I'm going to experience, and I guess the right, correct, the correct way to ask this question is now, how do I know if I'll experience financial strain or what can I do to limit that exposure? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think early dating is not the time to do that, to discuss it. So the first three or four dates, mm -hmm. five dates is not the time to discuss it. However, I think you can observe a lot of the information that you would want to talk about. Or you can ask questions like, you know, where did you go on your last vacation and what did you do? So if he or she says, I, you know, was in a tent and camping 
versus a five-star hotel. I ate at all these restaurants versus made my own meals. You know, ask questions. If you exercise, where do you exercise? Um, what do you do in your life? What do you what would you love to do on a weekend? Or what's what if you woke up and wanted to spend your most ideal day, what would you do? And the information that that person tells you about will tell you something about their finances, will tell you something about financial strain. How they view money. And how they view money. Absolutely. So I don't think that you have to ask a credit score how much money you make or what do you have in the bank and your assets and debts yeah. early on. But then as time goes on, if money is what I say a key life value to you, that's important in terms of how you see yourself and your life and what you want to do in your life, then talk about that as your key life value and make sure that that person has your same content and has that as a key life value as well. A few weeks ago, I had Paul Brunson. You know Paul Brunson, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. I like Paul. <laughs> great. I had him on the podcast a few weeks ago and we I told him that my favorite date, first date question is, um, you know, if you win the lottery, and yes. you, you get a scratch off ticket from your boss and you get a million dollars. You win a million dollars. What do you do with the money? And what was interesting to me is like how different our answers were, but also how our partners agreed with both of our answers. So for instance, he said he would take that a million and invest it all in Tesla. And I said, I would pay off my college debt, my sister's college debt and make education trusts for my kids and nieces and nephews. And my husband agrees with me and his wife agrees with him. And what, what I took away from that, and I can't stop thinking about it, is how mm -hmm. lucky Paul is that he found a partner that has the same measuring key risk. life value yeah, approach like, like, to money. I could, I could never like that. I, the idea of that was like, when just him, just me even saying it right now gives me like weird anxiety, like what? I'm giving away a million dollars. It gave me anxiety too, by the way. But it's a great answer, right? Because you know, like he yes. said, like in four years, that's gonna be worth six million. He's right. Like there's, you know, he's what he's saying is accurate. But at the same time, it's like, well, no, I have all this anxiety from other things. I need to get rid of this anxiety. Why can't I just pay it off? Like we measure risk so differently. And right. I can't get over how lucky we are that we found partners that are wildly different in each other, but they're perfect. Like they're perfect. They are aligned with, you know, the, the way of thinking in this. I love that. And that is so important that you are similar in that alignment and that approach to risk and money. When I first met my husband, mm -hmm. he was like Paul, he was, um, risk oriented. And I'm stable. I mean, I'd rather put my money in a bank with 0% yeah. interest exactly. than <laughs> the stocks. Right, exactly. And I think what happened before we got married is we became aligned. Mm -hmm. We borrowed and learned from each other. 
and compromise. And compromise, I think, you know, Maria, gets such a bad rap, but it's so important. And it doesn't mean that you give up yourself or you or what you are. (laughs) Compromise is positive. And so we came into the middle and that's now our similarity in terms of approach to risk and view of money. But that similarity, and that was so important for my couples, by the way, similarity in those key life values, mm-hmm. especially your top two key life values, was a huge predictor of who stayed together and who didn't. And if people stayed, they were happy or not. So that's very important. And I feel very fortunate that even though we were different at the beginning, that we grew to that similarity. So I, I want to re- reiterate this. So it's okay if you value things differently in the beginning, because we are different people living single lives, single perceptions of how things are. But if on some base level, your values align, you can grow to compromise on certain things or start to, um, you know, align together on big things. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Okay. It's, it's really the similarity and the alignment over the long term. Mm-hmm. So if you do meet somebody who has different values and they're so rigid and stable and yours are as well and there's no room for growth, learning or compromise and those that value is so important to you, that's not going to bode well for your relationship over time. Let's talk about the 10 minute rule that I have been calling yes. the 15 minute rule apparently. Um, and that's okay. I, I like that you called the 15-minute rule, too. No, that's fine. Terry, we do it every day. Since the day you told love me it. about it, we, like, are crazy about it. It's, mm-hmm. like, it's the best thing ever. It is. Because it's real communication. And that's really what it is, Maria. When I when I talk to the couples over so time. Let's tell people, let's tell people yes. what it is first. The 10-minute rule is that every single day, you want to spend at least 10 minutes. So you can spend 15, 20, you can even spend an hour, but at least 10 minutes talking with your partner about something other than these four topics, work, family and your children, home tasks, or your relationship. So those four topics, exactly, are maintenance talk, which is what really couples do over time. So when you don't do the maintenance talk, and you do this real communication at least 10 minutes every single day, that really creates bonding and intimacy and happiness, and it keeps you together, more likely to stay together over time. You know, I end my podcast every time by saying, you know, be lovable, but more importantly, be likable. And the inspiration from that is actually from your book. Mm, Because I feel like, you know, what that 10 minute, rule is about being likable. I feel like you have to, you know, when you get rid of the talking about your kids and about your job and about the house, for a lot of people, for a lot of people, you know this. Yes. It, that's it. Yes. There's, what else are we going to talk about? That's it. Right. Um, and you, I, my, my conclusion after reading your book and speaking to you, you know, way back when was like, okay, I have to do likable things <laughs> that I can share mm-hmm. with my partner every day. And that is when my husband and I, we started investing more time in listening to podcasts, separate ones that we would then relay or like, oh, I'm watching this documentary. Let me tell you about it. 
or a, hey, let's go, let, you know, I was listening to the stand-up comedian and here's what they said. What do you think about this? Like, we started doing things that we enjoy mm-hmm. separately. And so then brought it back together. to the relationship, yeah. right? Yeah. Which adds excitement and passion. I mean, it, you know, it's really easy to fall in love with someone, but it's really hard to choose to like someone for the next 30 years of your life or 40 years of your mm-hmm. life, 50 years of your mm-hmm. life. And it's like, well, you got to do things that, you know, set up the relationship for success. Absolutely. And, you know, everybody likes to do the same things. We like patterns. We like even, you know, routines. But those routines, those patterns don't bode well or don't, aren't good for long-term relationships. So that's exactly right, Maria. Do things that excite you, that make you likable, that you can bring back to the relationship. And during those 10 minutes, you talk about a new movie, a new book, a new class, a new podcast, um, a new song, a new person that you met. And share that with your partner or... Ask them something that you used to find interesting at the beginning of your relationship, but haven't asked since. We do this. You know, at, we talk. Yeah, we do this yeah. at dinner, the non maintenance talk, because it's so easy mm. at dinner time to start talking about the kids and yes. work. And yes, we it started is. doing this at dinner. It was like, okay, the 15 minute dinner, we can't talk about work. We can't That's talk great. about our kids, even though our kids are next to us. <laughs> I think that's great. Let's have an adult but again, you're modeling it. <laughs> you're modeling well, great communication. That, that, is, that is a good point. And now I'm even happier that I'm doing it at dinner time. But yeah, like that's that's exactly when we do it. Is dinner time is when we talk about other stuff that's not other stuff. Day. My husband and I also talk about when you go out with another couple and you, you know, us and that other couple just talk about kids and work, right? That becomes really boring. It's the couples that we love to spend time with, that we are excited to spend time with, who talk about all other kinds of things. So it's not just in your romantic relationships. It's in all of your relationships. I've never thought of that, but you're totally right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... Couples who we can talk about social justice and politics and self-reflection and what's important to us in life and all kinds of things. We just want to spend so much time with those couples and not as much time with the other couples. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Terry, this was amazing. I absolutely love talking to you and I'm so happy you were on my podcast, Ask a Matchmaker. Oh, such good questions, Maria. Such good questions. Um, you're so sweet. <laughs> okay, if you, you, are if you don't notice, uh, Dr. Terry Orbuck is uh, one of my mentors, so I'm like legitimately obsessed with her and anything she writes. So that's why I like her saying these are good questions. Just even though if she's just saying it, doesn't matter. I'm gonna like sleep on this. I'm so I'm happily. not saying it. Those <laughs> were great questions. You you heard me pause for a few seconds because I really had to think. Uh, That's why they were such great questions. Thank you. Well, where can people find you? Um, You know, your book is your book is coming out this month. People can find it. I'll put a link in the episode notes. But where can people uh, communicate with you or follow you or all that jazz? Well, my website is the best place to find me and all my social media. Uh, And that website is Dr. Terry, the love doctor.com. And so it's D R T E R R I, the love doctor.com. It's all one word. 
And you will find my Facebook, my Instagram, my LinkedIn, and my Twitter, as well as all of my links to the books on Amazon. And again, March 22nd is the publication of Secrets to Surviving Your Children's Love Relationships, all about as a parent how you can help your children have happy, healthy relationships. I love that. I really love that. Um, definitely we'll have you on again in the future to talk about that book as well. That would be great. Thank you, Maria. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. As I've mentioned previously, if you'd like to speak to me on an upcoming hotline episode, you can follow me on Instagram at matchmakermaria. That is where I post the link and you can join me there. If you'd like to learn more about what I do or enroll in an upcoming Agape Intensive, visit agapematch.com services. Thank you again for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. Be lovable and more importantly, be likable. See you next week.